Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jared Simon. I'm the director of student ministries here. I'm in charge of middle school and high school uh, ministries. Um, I do have to say before I start this sermon, the past two times that I've been in here, the Falcons and the Patriots have played each other and the Falcons have lost both of those games. The Falcons do not play the Patriots today. And I looked last night, they don't play the Patriots in the regular season. So maybe this is a turnaround for us as a group together. So third time is a charm on that. Um, I want to thank everyone, uh, volunteers especially, who come and or make this service possible. Um, I'm always blessed to see the people who show up on Sunday mornings and give of their own time to make sure that we are able, <clears throat> excuse me, to worship together. Um, one quality that we don't like about us as human beings is our human willingness to engage in war. War is common and familiar to the human race. Throughout all of our history, we've killed each other. We've killed our own kind. Human beings engage in murder and in war on each other, unlike any other plant or animal on the planet. So since human beings are so warlike, we are most interested in the weapons of war. Uh, in generations past, we were interested in knives, swords, spears. Uh, recently, we were more interested in guns, bombs, airplanes. Uh, today, we're most interested in lasers, computerized bombs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the Space Force, to fight our inevitable wars. And an occupation of past wars was that of the smith, the blacksmith. Um, many of you know someone or maybe named Smith after the famous smithy. And the smithy was the person who manufactured the weapons made of iron for war. And every smithy knew that there were two kinds of military arms, defensive and offensive. Armor to protect, weapons to kill life. Armor was defensive, weapons were offensive. Everybody knew that the basic difference between protecting life and killing life. And today we underscore that armor, we underscore that armor was to protect life and to preserve life. Um, in the book Arms and Armor Throughout the Ages, the author Helmut Nichols, and I know that's an amazing name to write a book about armor, um, said that one of the first people to ever wear suits of armor were the Sumerians. The Sumerians lived in Mesopotamia where Abraham came from, and they were the first people to wear helmets and heavy leather coats to protect them in battle. And the, hever, he, the heavy coats were the first armored suits. And when you read this book, you come to the conclusion that armor was always intended to be worn during wars. Armor was not to be worn to a picnic or a family reunion. Let me trade, let me, you might need to wear armor to a family reunion. <laughs> so family reunions are maybe. Armor was intended for war and only a fool would go into battle without wearing his full suit of armor. You know, when I think of armor, I, I go uh, to King Arthur and his court, the Knights of the Round Table. I think of the 14th, 15th centuries in France and Germany and England where armor was so highly developed. Pieces of armor became works of art. And now those armor, some of them are valued in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think of Sir Lancelot and Guinevere. 
Sir Lancelot wearing a helmet to protect his head, covering his shoulders in the pauldron, covering his lower arms in the vambrous, covering his hands are, are the gauntlets. All of these are French words, so if I'm butchering them, please give me some grace. Covering and protecting his chest is the breastplate. Protecting his lower legs are the greaves, and protecting his feet are the sabatons. And in his left hand is a shield, and his right hand is a sword, which is the only offensive weapon as part of this, this suit of armor that we just heard. And everyone who ever wore such a suit of armor put on all the pieces of that armor. How foolish was the person who didn't protect his head? His shoulders, his arms, his hands, his legs, his feet. You had to put on the whole armor to go into battle. Everybody knew, knew this. I hope everybody still knows this. You didn't have to persuade anyone of this basic fact. And the Apostle Paul here, he's advising and motivating us to put on the whole armor, the entire armor of God. To use all the resources we have to protect ourselves from the cunning onslaughts of the power of evil who is keenly aware of where we are vulnerable. vulnerable. The power of the evil one always attacks us where we don't have any protection, where we don't have any armor on. So Paul's advising us, he's motivating us about the wisdom of putting all of God's armor. So how to apply Paul's lesson and analogy about the armor to us who live in America at the beginning of the third millennium? First of all, we're living in a battlefield. We're engaged in a vicious warfare, but a lot of us don't realize it. We don't get it. Let me explain real quick. In the book of Ephesians, it says that we are fighting with the powers of darkness, the powers of evil that live inside and around us. We're not fighting simply with our own egos or our own selfishness. We're not fighting simply with our own flesh, with our own addictions and passions. We're not merely fighting battles with alcohol, drugs, sex, or material pleasures, important as those are. The Bible says that we are fighting with an evil force greater than ourselves, the very powers of darkness. And who causes all the wars around us and around all of human history? Who causes all the starvation in the world where the vast majority do not have sufficient food and water and all the while there's plenty of food and water available? Who slaughtered children and parents in the death camps of Germany, Cambodia, or Argentina? It's the power of evil. It certainly isn't God who has called, caused all these enormous devastations around the globe. The power of evil is insidious, global, and there is no place to escape it. So what do we do in the face of such monstrous evil around us and throughout all of our past history? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We create islands of pleasure and sanctuaries of sugar. We create illusions that all is well with me and mine as long as we can keep the bloodbaths at a distance. We create sanctuaries of suburbia and we try to live in the safety of that suburbia. And when it becomes too dangerous or poor here, we'll move. 
to a safer church, to a safer suburb, a safer island in the sun. We're all alike. We build our sanctuaries of safety and we try to keep the real violence just on the television, away from us. And then gradually, we find that the snake lives here in our suburbia. That snake that was found in the Garden of Eden. The snake is working invisibly in our little gardens, in our spiritual suburbs. And for some strange reason, we become apathetic. We become apathetic to the world around us where actual human beings are refugees with little water, little food, and little security. Apathetic to the homeless in the streets of Statesboro. Apathetic to the lonely people in the neighboring nursing home. Apathetic to all in need who require our time, possessions, and love. And so we put our blinders on so that we don't see them or we only see them on the TV, safely away from us in the real world. That's what we do. We create spiritual suburbs and islands of illusions. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's the idea of our definition of holy. See, a lot of us take the definition of holy from the Puritans. The Puritans would have told you that the definition of holy is to be set apart for a purpose. And that's what the Puritans did. They set themselves apart from society, from, from everything that they could. And they were set apart for a purpose. But what about the definition of holy in Micah 6.8? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I wonder that sometimes because that definition in Micah 6, 8 is not to set ourselves apart from the people around us, from the community that we're in, but to be in the middle of it. Rather than running away from the battles of life and the power of apathetic evil living inside and around us, Paul actually has another alternative, another battle plan, if you will. Paul talks about Christians living in a world filled with evil and injustice. Living in a world where real evil, with real evil in it, it's wise to put on the whole armor of God when engaged in battle with the evil one. And then Paul lists seven qualities, seven pieces of armor that we can benefit from. And Paul is so wise in describing each piece of this necessary armor. And this number seven is actually a, a symbolic number of wholeness within Scripture. The whole armor, the full suit of armor. We read that we are to put on the whole armor of God because we're not dealing with the passions of the flesh, but the powers of darkness in this world. Paul then talks about standing and then uses the word stand four times. Did you catch that? We're to stand, stand against, stand for, and stand up against the powers of darkness. Um, when I was getting my... Uh, my bachelor's degree, I took, I had to take a world lit class and I had to read this play. Uh, it's entitled The Trojan Women by Euripides. And the, this play is 2,400 years old. But the themes are so surprisingly contemporary. 
The play is about women who survived the battle of Troy, where the unsuspecting Spartans had brought the Trojan horse and the enemy soldier slipped out of that Trojan horse at night and killed everyone in sight. And this small group of women was left and the main character, Aruba, was lying on the ground, beaten and bruised by war. And she crawls to her knees and she speaks with this growing crescendo. She says, stand up, stand up, women of the world, stand Scholars say that this is the oldest recorded drama of human history and its first lines have been immortalized. Stand up, stand up women of the world. And that's what Paul wants us to do, to stand, stand up, to stand against, to stand tall. Paul continues and begins to describe these seven pieces of armor. First, put on the belt of truth. I picture Sir Lancelot wearing this incredible belt, strong, wide, protective. But this belt of truth is truth in relationships, truth about God and God's love, truth about our spouses, our children, our parents, our grandparents, our neighbors. Finally grasping the truth about ourselves. To live truthfully and not to live a lie. What a gift from God. Then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, right relationships, healthy relationships, good relationships with all those around you and even yourself to be in right relationships and not wrong, sick and demeaning relationships. Another gift from God. Then put on foot protectors of peace. Not to be looking for a fight with yourself, your family member, your co-worker. Trying to work through the legitimate conflicts that are always found between people and nations and ethnic groups. To be a peacemaker. To work hard for peace and towards peace in all relationships. I've always thought it's interesting that the thing that we're supposed to have for peace goes on our feet. Because we're supposed to be peacemakers not peacekeepers, two completely different things. If you're a little confused about what the difference is, replace the word peace with trouble. And we've probably all thought of at least three kids. We are called to take peace everywhere we go. Another gift from God. Then he says to put on the shield of faith, to trust God, to trust that God is with you, To trust that God is in you, to trust that God will strengthen you for every situation that you're facing. You can't prove it. You can't prove God. You can't prove God's inner strength. You can't prove eternal life. But you've been given the gift of trust. Trusting your inner spiritual self. Trusting God's slow plan to health and wholeness. There are times we can't see it, but we trust God's future plan for our lives on both sides of the grave. Then he says to put on the helmet of salvation. What a gift to know that you're saved. That there is nothing you can do to earn or merit your own salvation, but the salvation and eternal life are a gift from God. That we don't have to worry about being saved. 
Then we're supposed to put on the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. The power, there is power in Scripture, in the Bible, in God's words. The words of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Old Testament are not merely words printed on pages of this dusty book that we pull out once a week to hear somebody read from. God's words are living words intended to live within us and live through us. We learn them. We memorize them. We recite them spiritually in our brains so that's God's word, so that God's words are constantly inside of us. What a resource. And then now comes to the topic of today's sermon. Um, I thought it would be unwise to skip over the other parts of the armor since we're supposed to put on the whole suit of armor. But it does tie in what we're talking about because today ends our series on living well together. And if you think that you could put on armor by yourself and go into whatever battle it is that you're facing and come out on top, you are sorely mistaken. The seventh quality is to put on praying in the spirit. Now, there's no piece of armor mentioned with this seventh quality. But the quality is of utmost importance. Praying in the spirit, in the mood, in the emotion, in the remembrance. This is a rhetorical question. Please don't answer this aloud. Do you have problems with prayer in a wandering mind? Do you have a problem praying the Lord's prayer and staying focused? How many of us, when we just said it a few moments ago, said our father who art in heaven. And then we went on to about that bill or that assignment or the game that's going to be on TV later. In a way, our minds wander. Not praying in the spirit at all, but distracted by every thought and whim that enters our mind simultaneously with our prayers. What power is there to praying in the spirit? One of my most favorite prayers is the prayer of St. Francis. It's usually prayed around the time of Lent, but I tell you, it speaks to me every time I read it and I say it. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. You have no idea what power this is for me to hear this prayer from within me whenever I say it and I recite it. To pray in the Spirit is another great resources, another piece of armor. But you know, I think prayer gets pushed to the side sometimes because it, it comes when it comes to our, it gets pushed to the side sometimes when it comes to our spiritual armor because it isn't a physical piece. We're okay with talking about helmets and breastplates and belts and shoes. But to have something that doesn't have this tangible piece is difficult to put on sometimes. 
Um, researchers who study people who are involved with their faith have found that it isn't how many times you go to church. It isn't how many service projects that you're a part of. It isn't how many times you go to Sunday school. It isn't how many times that you're nice to somebody. It's not how much you put in the offering plate throughout the year that determines how involved you are with your faith. The key indicator is prayer. People who pray and pray regularly are found to be the most involved with their faith. They've been found to truly hold their faiths dear and not just go through the motions of their faith. Prayer is what gives people courage to stand up to evil. Prayer is what gives people understanding when things at their church aren't going the way that they see fit. Prayer is what gives people insight to situations that go well beyond our own understanding. Prayer is what brings us closer to God and closer with the people around us. The scripture tell us to, tells us to, to pray in the spirit. And many of us would say, you know, Jared, I pray all the time. But I wonder how many of us are actually praying in the spirit, not praying in the spirit, but actually praying in ourselves. And what I mean is, how many times do we pray and it's only during the desperate times? It's only whenever we want something. I think that part of in the spirit is so important because it moves what seems like only a personal thing to this community event. We are in community with Christ when we pray. And when we truly try to connect with Christ in prayer, we become connected to all the other followers who are truly connecting with Christ in prayer as well. We even become connected to those who aren't trying to connect in prayer. Like a family member who you pray for that has lost faith. When I was 22 years old, my father died from cancer. It was quick. He was diagnosed in March of that year. And on December 29th of the same year, he passed away. He was a great man. He loved his family. He loved God. And it was him who taught me about my faith. And when he died, I lost faith. It shook my world. I didn't know how I could continue to have faith in something with such a broken heart and a broken spirit. And almost a year later, I had a friend call me up. He actually, uh, we went to school together in undergrad, and then he moved up and went to Yale Divinity School. And he called me later. And he said, Jared, I've been praying for you. That's all he told me. That he knew that I was hurting. Through my friend's faithfulness to prayer, he was staying connected to God. And through that, he was staying connected to me as well. So today, at the end of our series on living well together, I urge you to pray. Pray for each other. Pray with each other. Pray for peace. Pray that we may have the courage to make peace. Because in prayer, we are connected. So I challenge you this week to pray. And this isn't some empty hearted challenge from somebody standing behind a pulpit. This is a serious challenge. I challenge you to pray by yourself. Pray in the spirit, not the wandering mind prayer. Pray in the spirit three times this week.
three times. And I challenge you to pray at least two times with someone else. Not for someone else, with someone else. One person, a group of people. And then after that, I want you to write your thoughts down. I want you to write down what happened within you, within that group, and what came out of it. I'd love to know what people find out about themselves and others after just one week of truly focusing on praying in the Spirit. Because prayer is what connects us to live well with each other. It connects us to be one in Christ, to be one community, and to answer the one calling that Christ has laid before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would always pray in the Spirit, but not to have a wandering mind, but to stay focused on you. In your name we pray. Amen.